take first watch. Hello, welcome to an all new, very special episode of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach and I'm here with Cole. How are you? I've got a sinking feeling. How about you? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to talk about a thing called life and love and Jim Cameron's 1997 Best Picture winning, epic, romantic, historical blockbuster Titanic. And here to help us talk about that is our good friend James, who's returning to our show after i think it might have been elvis yeah got it we really have you pegged because we had you on for west side story you're on for baz lerman now you're here for titanic how are you feeling i love big grand sweeping epic movies so yes. <laughs> it makes sense that i'm here for west side story and titanic so i know that you've been catching up lately with some 2022 releases anything catch your eye recently anything you've been watching yeah it's a combo of difficult to get to the cinema in the last year and also australian releases are always super delayed so i didn't get most of the awards season 2022 fair until this last month some of my favorites from the last month have been i finally got to see tar absolutely loved kate blanchett in that um right now nina haas is my most watched actress of the year I mean, that's a good place to be. I saw that you rated Phoenix. Yes. Mm, what a picture. Maybe her best work. <laughs> I finally got to see Bones and All, also loved, The Eternal Daughter, and Babylon. But the uh, I think the most recent one I saw that I absolutely fell in love with is After Sun. I actually found out recently that I'm exactly the same age as Paul Mescal. Mm. Oh, so nice. The thematic, emotional drive of that film hey. really just hit like a whole other level of, oh no, I'm really at that place in my life right now. My favorite thing in a family drama movie is where you identify with both generations of characters, like the young daughter character, and you're like, oh yeah, I identify with these daddy issues. And you see Paul Mescal, and you're like, oh yeah, I identify with this middle-aged man. (laughs) The quote, I think, in the movie where it really stuck with me (laughs) how much I related to it was he was like, I don't imagine myself at 40. I didn't really think I'd make it to 30, to be honest. Incredible accent work there by the Irishman Paul Mescal. Just totally sounds like a dude from Edinburgh, Scotland. Yeah, he might be my performance of the year. Really deserving Best Actor nomination. It's a great pick. I'm not even sure who's nominated. (laughs) Austin Butler. Austin Butler for Elvis. Colin Farrell for Banshees of Inisherin. Brendan Fraser for The Whale. Bill Nighy for Living. (laughs) I don't know if that's a fake movie or not. I still can't tell because I have no idea where to see it. I have never even heard of it. It's the UK's version of we have Ikiru at home. (laughs) And I've yet to see the whale. So the three of those are great. That trifecta (laughs) of Austin Butler, Colin Farrell, Paul Mescal is really strong. And I've heard good (laughs) things about the Nai performance. And the less we talk about the whale, probably the better so that Cole can make it through the rest of this episode. It only just released here this week, and I can't bring myself to see it. It'll be weeks before I probably catch like a Sunday matinee or something. Recently, this is kind of off topic, but I recently watched, I recently rewatched Funeral Parade of Roses in theaters. And there's a couple different oh, moments yeah. where the editing in that movie to various music is really, really, really similar to what Wells is doing during that under pressure david bowie needle drop at the end of after sun devastating just a dead ringer for collapsing into shadow 
and then going back into memory and then flinging back into the future and then going even further into the future. Incredible sequence. Probably the best low-budget cinematography I've seen from the last decade. The stuff that really stuck with me was like the editing. There's one in particular where it's Mescal standing up in these like stadium seats as everybody's singing happy birthday to him. And you get like a double exposure of him all the way enclosed within himself. And he's like sitting on a bed crying, facing away Mm -hmm. from the camera. And it's just an incredible image. Great movie. Great debut. I mean, really unbelievable debut, to be honest, how much command there is. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what she does next. Cole, what about you? Have you caught up with anything good recently? I know that you've been like hitting that January slate hard. (laughs) Yeah, listen, I love the January slate. To me, there's nothing better than, you know, whatever the studio decided wasn't good enough to put out during the rest of the year and that they just had to dump somewhere because, you know, it's good to watch trash. You got to have some balance, you know? I've been re-watching a few movies by a film Twitter favored director with a new release. Speaking of, you know, you gotta yeah. watch bad movies like you and I talked about. I won't get into that. We'll, we'll save that for we'll another that conversation. Later. We'll handle um, film Twitter's equivalent of the barbs at another time. Uh, <laughs> but I recently saw The Quiet Girl, which is Ireland's nomination mm. for Best International Film. Really sweet, lovely little story. First movie I've ever seen that's actually in the Irish language. So hopefully mm. this recognition leads to some more productions in Irish. It's really like the most authentically Irish Oscar-nominated movie. 100%. In a ceremony with like a ton of Irish acting talent, directing, writing talent, with obviously Banshees of Inishirin, Paul Mescal, who we've already yeah. brought up. I don't know where all these Irish people came from. I don't <laughs> think it's a coincidence that they all popped up after Lizzie croaked, but uh, I'm just saying. We have really lovely movie. If you liked Petite Maman, you'll love this. Also, catching up with the AARP crowd, I watched Shotgun Wedding, the uh, new j-lo rom-com where she's getting married to josh jamel and they decide to have a destination wedding on this little resort in the philippines <laughs> and then pirates come and hold everybody hostage it's basically <laughs> just a j-lo rom-com except with violence jennifer coolidge gets to wield a machine gun but on the theatrical flip side of comedies i saw 80 for brady based off of the true story of Four older women, played by Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Rena Moreno, and Sally Field. Say that again. Run me through those names again. <laughs> Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Rena Moreno, and Sally Field. It's the most absurd fucking cast of all time <laughs> for like a Tom Brady ego movie. Start with Jane Fonda <laughs> and Lily Tomlin, and I'm like, okay, I kind of know what this movie is. And then you add Rena Moreno, and I'm confused. And then you add Sally Field, and I'm like, you made that up. <laughs> This is all vaguely based on the true story of four older women from Massachusetts who traveled to Houston to see the Super Bowl game in 2017. That is famously the Super Bowl where the New England Patriots were down very large to the Atlanta Falcons and then came back to win The most stressful football game of my entire life. Everyone in Atlanta still (laughs) thinks that. Well, you know what? That's their problem and they can cry (laughs) about it. I don't care. But this was hilarious and slightly demented. Lily Tomlin's character, it turns out that she went through chemotherapy and watching Patriots games was a bonding activity that her and her group of friends did to help her get through it. So she's like the Tom Brady super fan out of all of them. 
So she has like these visions of Tom Brady speaking to her. I mean, if you want to watch these four fabulous actresses have a fun time, I would definitely recommend it because they are super fun and they have a great dynamic together. Yeah, what an insane cast for this movie. Seriously. (laughs) Now that we've done this, can somebody real write a real movie for the four of them to be in together? I mean, two of them have another movie coming out next month. Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda are going to be in something called... I can't remember what it's called. I saw the trailer for it today, but it's about two older women who decide to kill an ex-husband or something. So it's a Diabolik remake. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to go that route. They're both on that Netflix show together, right? Yeah, they did Grace and Frankie for a long time, so now they just want to work on everything together. Yeah, that's it. It's also got Malcolm McDowell in it. Is it called Moving On? Yes. Speaking of comedies with really loaded casts, I got to catch up with a movie from last year which Cole mentioned on our 2022 year-end episode briefly, called Official Competition. Oh, yeah. Which is a movie out of Spain starring Penelope Cruz and Antonio Banderas, as well as Oscar Martinez. This movie is about, basically, there is a very wealthy man who's looking back on his life and questioning his legacy and decides he needs to spend his money on something people will remember, like a bridge or a city project or... If all else fails, a movie. And what ensues in official competition is the attempt to adapt a very famous novel into a film. Penelope Cruz plays the director who's kind of like art house famous. She's won a Palme d'Or. They go and get her because the fellow that's producing it wants the best talents in the world. And she recommends two different actors. One of them is Antonio Banderas, who's playing like total blowhard celebrity ego Spanish actor that does American Hollywood movies. And then opposite him is an Argentinian actor who's like a serious theatrical student of the craft. What I really liked about it is that it feels like at any moment it could just start playing everything straight. It's just these different personalities there making a movie together. But every scene stretches and contorts and lingers until everything about it becomes fucking hilarious. It's one of the best comedies of last year, I think. 100%. Just the scene with the giant rock alone just (laughs) makes it the funniest. Just like sitting under this giant boulder that she has and it's like an acting exercise she's like it's like the characters have this weight hanging over their heads and you hear like the crane is like she's psycho she also has that great alma harrell orange frizzy wig yep (laughs) fantastic stuff definitely recommend pretty much any triangle of sadness oscar that you just pushed over to official competition that would satisfy me there's a couple Best Actress candidates, nominees, who you could replace with Penelope Cruz, and that would be a correct decision. But mm-hmm. we don't have to linger on those. So. You saw that, right? Did you see Two Leslie? I did. Uh, it was it was all right. Uh, yeah. It was fun, you know, just like a eh, kind of little indie movie. Uh, Allison Janney's in it, and she's in, like, biker drag, which was a trip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Andrea Riseborough was fine. I just think a lot of strings got pulled to make that yeah. happen. And maybe some more deserving, interesting picks got looked over in favor of that mm-hmm. performance. Some of those strings were pulled, in fact, by one of the actresses in the film we are discussing today. Mm, very interesting. The movie that I saw before rewatching Titanic for this theatrical re-release for the conversation we're about to have, 
and the main one that I wanted to bring up is the third Magic Mike movie, Magic Mike's Last Dance, a return to the director chair for Steven Soderbergh after Magic Mike XXL was directed by his longtime assistant director, Gregory Jacobs. But Soderbergh has been involved in the production of all three movies. He's the cinematographer of all three movies. I believe he edited them as well. All three of them are written by the same screenwriter, Reed Carolyn. So it is like a proper trilogy. But it's Soderbergh returning after 10 years away from the original movie. And I would say, like, if you're familiar with them, if you've seen them, there's a bit of a dichotomy between the original movie, which is very focused on, like, the gig economy in 2012 and the notion of equity and stripping as a business and what it meant for these men who were aging in the profession and what they were going to make of their lives financially. Because that's what Soderbergh movies tend to be about. The sequel, XXL, kind of flipped the switch on that, made it much more of like a character ensemble dance movie. It doesn't lose sight of all those themes, but it backburners them in favor of something quite a bit more character-driven, experience-driven. And now, as it returns back to Soderbergh after he's been making, you know, No Sudden Move, after he's been making Mosaic, Let Them All Talk, these very kind of digital age digital cinematography, movies about these themes that he's interested, he kind of takes it back. We open up on the story and Mike, after the first two movies, is back to bartending because the cruel realities of life mean that you always got to have a job. You always got to make money. You always got to pay your mortgage or your rent or something, which leads him to bartending for rather wealthy woman called Max, played by Salma Hayek. And she's going through a separation with her husband. And She's looking for something to spice up her life and finds out that this really hot bartender that happens to be working at this event that she's holding used to be a male dancer. And so she says, what would it take to get you to do a dance for me? To which she replies, $60,000. <laughs> she winds up talking him down to six. And then, uh, Cole, do you want to take it? How would you describe that scene? I have never been so <laughs> jealous of anyone else in my entire life than I was jealous of Selma Hayek during this scene. Ooh. Soderbergh is back. And it is so hot. <laughs> all in all, I kind of found this to be a whole step down from XXL. Mm -hmm. But I also sort of went into this with the right expectations. And I think that if people go into it with the right expectations, they'll be able to access what the movie's going for. I think the thing that the two Soderbergh entries in this trilogy do really well is they try to give you something that's cold and harsh and real. And then they give you this exuberance, excitement, the sexuality as a contrast to that. And it's talking about like, where do dance, sexuality, and all these different expressions fit within our real world? How do they fit within the economics of our real world? How do they fit within the values of our real world? And I just think that they're like wildly intelligent movies, considering that by and large, what they're there for is watching a half-naked man grind on somebody for yeah. two hours. Yeah. I mean, this one especially just breaks down the conflict between art and commerce. Mm -hmm. The whole plot is basically that Max wants to have Mike come and direct a show, which is sort of a combination between the striptease dance and theater. Mm -hmm. And it's really, I mean, in a meta-textual way, it's about what making the movie's like. All the various bullshit yeah. politics finances, grease and palms, and figuring out how to put on a show, how to cast a show, and what it means to represent 
certain experiences in your life, trying to capture a moment through performance, things like that. You've got that Sama Hayek scene that we were just talking about, and then there's like a spiritual reprise of it that is on stage that's like, I mean, it's like the best dance sequence I've seen since the last Magic Mike movie, I think. So maybe Climax you could throw in there as well. Yeah, but overall, this is a very good time. I feel like I saw this before Titanic, and all the old ladies that I saw it with, we just all stood up and walked from one auditorium to the other auditorium together. (laughs) Originally, I was planning on seeing Titanic first, because I had a ticket to go see it in Dolby, and that auditorium had technical difficulties, so I wound up doing it in reverse. I did Magic Mike first, and then Titanic, which was great, (laughs) but I was was sort of hoping to have the Magic Mike pick me up after the end of Titanic, you know what I mean? Yeah. I could see the need for that. So, without any further ado, let's go ahead and move on to the main topic of today, James Cameron's Titanic. The Ship of Dreams. Basically, James Cameron has had an obsession with shipwrecks for his entire life, as he is obsessed with all things related to water. He started researching the Titanic, even learned how to deep sea dive to go down there. And then he went to 20th Century Fox, and he pitched them an idea. Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. And they were like... Is there any Terminator stuff in there? Like some kind of action? <laughs> like, are we just going to do a free hour romance? And he's like, yep. And they're like, well, okay. So he goes off and makes Titanic and it's a complete fiasco. Most of the crew on set gets drugged for the chowder or the punch, whatever it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everyone gets hypothermia. It's freezing. Budget is going out of control to the point where Paramount has to step in. So now it's a co-production between two major studios. Everyone thinks that the movie is going to bomb. And then it opens up on December 19th, 1997. And it becomes the biggest movie of all time. It coincides perfectly with a brief phase known as Leo Mania, where <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio was the biggest star in the world when this movie happened. Yep. Like, he was a big star, and then this happened, and it was a frenzy. The number one twink. <laughs> I was only six years old when this movie came out, but I remember the moment, because it didn't end for years. <laughs> like, there's no movie not even Avatar, which has outgrossed it, but none of your Star Wars, none of your Marvel, none of these big budget, huge movies hold a fucking candle to what this was like in terms of its popularity. Because it wasn't, you know, like, okay, everybody went to see it, big, huge, crazy opening weekend, blah. No, it was week in, week out. People were seeing it four, five, six times. Its single highest grossing day at the box office was Valentine's Day 1998, two whole months after the opening weekend. I mean, it is a great Valentine's Day film. Yeah, it really is. Especially (laughs) if you want to end up crying. Like I did today, and I found out that my eyeshadow was not waterproof. The song My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion debuted at number one. It stayed there for two weeks. It stayed on the Billboard chart for ten weeks. (laughs) Every aspect of this movie just totally reached out and grabbed everybody. It's interesting because I think that, you know, as you talk about that production, this really goes one of two ways, right? It goes the way of Terminator 2, which is how it went, which is difficult, challenging production, and the end result was a phenomenon, a huge success, and everybody saw like, wow, they rose to the challenge and created something incredible. Because the other way that it could go is the abyss, where you spent all that money and bet. We had to wait for several years for a fucking re-release just to get a version of it that works, that makes Mm -hmm. any sense, that's 40 minutes longer because of how much (laughs) 
you had to put in there. It's just astonishing how tightly put together this is for mm-hmm. a movie that is so massive. Yeah. You know, it's crazy that one of the biggest, if not the biggest movie in history is about this honestly relatively niche topic in a sense. Mm. If anything, it's only like this big because of this movie. I think that Titanic has a fairly storied cinematic history. Yeah. So of all the mediums to try to pull this off, this is one that makes sense because disaster films, at least in the 20th century, maybe not so much now, were always popular. Yeah. And, you know, to the point that what, what was it like just a couple weeks, maybe a couple months after the Titanic sank in 1912? The first cinematic version of the Titanic sinking came out 29 days yeah. after it happened. 29 days. Like there have been numerous Titanic movies. Yeah. And for years, the thing about them was well, actually that first one had a survivor of the Titanic that was like in the cast yep. as well. But for the most part, like the authenticity of those movies was terribly suspect. You know, yeah. it was like about the excitement. It was about the movie. Up to a certain point, probably the most accurate Titanic adaptation was Nazi propaganda. It yeah. was a German film made during the Nazi regime that was like propaganda against the British, basically being like, their inept asses got everybody fucking killed, which not totally wrong. <laughs> no, and uh, that is actually the version that Cameron took the most inspiration from. So make of that what you will. Because up to that point, it had been one of the most copiously factual. And then in the 50s, there's a breakthrough movie called A Night to Remember. Mm -hmm. There was this writer who wanted to capture the real history of what happened in all of its detail so that there would be a factual record that existed of how the ship was built, how the ship was sailed, how it sank, how people died. And that was adapted into this movie called A Night to Remember, which I watched pretty like it was like late last year after I rewatched Titanic actually, and it like it's fascinating when you watch that how correct the '97 movie is, like oh, how yeah. much James Cameron did his research to make this big epic blockbuster factual, like a representation mm-hmm. of real history yeah. to the point that like many different characters are people that were really on the boat. Yeah, I mean this guy was so obsessed with making sure everything was correct that he contacted. The company that made the rugs for the Titanic and said, Hey, I have the original designs. Could you remake these for my set that I plan on sinking? The entire like scale Titanic that they built is fucking wild. It's I think it's like only one side of the boat. Yeah. And I believe that became a museum. Yeah, there's actually like some kind of interactive exhibit touring around the country. I think it's actually in LA right now. To me, like one of the coolest things that movies can do is take to history. But obviously, like they get distorted and changed for the sake of their stories and emotions and everything. But they can spark this curiosity where you watch Titanic and you're like, wow, did it really take that long to sink? Were there really no boats that could come to help anybody? And I think the key to this, one of the two keys to this, is how the movie opens underwater with these Russian submarines. You begin with James Cameron's passion for oceanography, for submarines, for exploring the shipwrecks. And from that point, we get to take a journey into history because of his passion, because of his interest. And I think the second reason is also part of that framing device. I know people that don't like the fucking framing scene and they can get lost because they're wrong. Because the other most important part of it is Rose, the older version of Rose. 
There's a scene in this to me that's very akin to the News on the March segment from Citizen Kane, where they do a 3D recreation of how the Titanic sank. And it is like minute by minute correct. It's like it went here, this part went down, it snapped in half, it went blip, 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 blip. And they show this to Rose, and there's like a guy that's all fucking like giddy and excited about it because computer models are cool, history is cool. And this idea that, like, just like that Citizen Kane, like, the details don't tell the story. Facts do not tell a story. Memory tells a story. Passion tells a story. Movies, images tell a story. And that's where, like, the Titanic of Jack and Rose and the adventure and the excitement and the danger and the death, all of that is memory. And I feel like I'm fucking always talking about this, but this is such a clear example of how, like, memory takes a shipwreck and the bottom of the ocean and all these various items, jewels, beds, carpets and says this happened these were people's lives this was my life and that's where this movie begins also you got paxton in the hoop earring and the chunky sweater it's as hot (laughs) as he's ever been i don't understand people that say Uh... the framing device is a hindrance to the movie because to me part of what makes titanic work is that contrast between the opening is so cynical oh none of this shit matters this only matters if like we can get the heart of the ocean it only matters insofar that we can profit off of it and it rings for me sort of like james cameron predicting what the cultural response to the movie over the decades would be because so many people react to Titanic's popularity with such a cynicism of like, oh, why does it matter? Oh, it's so schmaltzy. It rings for me kind of the same attitude that everyone in that opening scene has. And it's that contrast that it's like James Cameron being like, let me show you where you're at and then take you on a journey of where you need to be emotionally. And it's that contrast that elevates Titanic above just an epic romance for me. Everyone in the audience in 1997 was that guy walking Rose through that computer model talking about the boat and like she's got her ass up in the air or whatever and it's like you need to sit down and you need to listen because for all of your talk about the action 1500 people died and this is their story watching it yesterday was the first time I watched it in five years and I kind of let that cultural cynicism sink in a little bit subconsciously where I kind of like return to it and I'm like am I going to have this same emotional reaction am I going to be like above it this time and it opens and I'm like yeah maybe I am I'm kind of like I kind of align with these guys now and then it starts with the cut to Rose's first memory and it's like oh no 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 I'm back in it I'm fully back there and it's that ability to win me back over after a decade of existing in a pool of cynicism. It's why it has staying power. There's two moments with Rose, the older version of Rose. They're tiny. They're like really important. And they stuck out to me both of the last two times I watched them. The first is before she ever arrives at the Titanic with the crew, when the drawing is being shown on television and the camera cuts to be her point of view, walking in from the room as if she's being like, pulled into the story by the power of this art and the power of this experience such a like overwhelming moment it's quite subtle um i literally just got out of watching stalker by tarkovsky but like that's what's happening like you're being magnetically pulled first person into the world the second one happens later in the movie because we return to the framing device a couple times and it's like you see this crew that james has been talking about and they're all just like wrapped 
they're all just like sitting like it's story time like tell us more rose keep going don't stop now we know that this boat sinks and for me i don't want to get ahead of it because we'll get there this movie is terribly upsetting me to watch it's not just like sad it's a little more than that but the idea that i feel just like the people on that boat like no no keep going tell me more that's so vital to be able to take something that draws such a strong emotional response out of human mortality, but that I just need to know, I need to see it, I need to experience it and feel it. That's such a gift for a filmmaker to be able to conjure that, I think. Yeah. Winning you over even though you've seen it before, pulling you back in even from a cynical response, and then making you feel engaged and immersed even when you know that sometimes that leads to some painful places. Something a lot of people will post on social media or whatever, whenever they're watching this movie again, is they're like, I really thought Jack was going to make it this time. I mm-hmm. thought the boat wasn't going to sink. Or I really wanted it to turn out differently this time. Mm-hmm. I just desperately don't want it to go there. And then that's the tragedy of it, because every time you watch it, you get so sucked up that it's like watching it for the first time. And you don't want this to end the way that it does, the way that you know it's going to end. A friend of mine watched The Godfather today, and they were talking about Sonny Corleone that way. Every time you watch The Godfather, you're like, <laughs> maybe Sonny will... Nope. Every time. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> One of the big digs on this movie, in addition to the schmaltz, is I think people kind of hone in on the dialogue. And I'll agree. I mean, it's not Banshees of Inishir, right? It's not like all this like poetic shit. But the chemistry between Winslet and DiCaprio is palpable. And that draws me so deeply into their characters. I feel so invested in their affection for each other, especially because obviously like this movie, as well as the Titanic disaster itself, is very defined by class conflict. Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Jack, comes from the lower class, is only on this boat because he won, you know, ticket to the lowest deck of the boat versus Rose, upper class, top deck. And you get really invested in their affection because they don't belong in each other's world. He doesn't belong with the rich people and really neither does she. Her personality clashes with her entire station and her class and her family. So I just think that that really pushes you into their connection, which the movie doesn't rush at all, by the way. They have chemistry from the first time they meet, but it takes its time. It really lets it build over time in a very believable way. Where you have these moments of pure movie bliss. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the kind of poster image is the two of them on the bow of the ship. King of the world stuff. Oh, God. That whole entire thing, like every single shot is one of my favorite things about all of those shots is how gorgeously lit every single scene on deck is because they're for some reason all set at sunrise and sunset (laughs) and (laughs) i don't care because Uh it looks incredible it's so stunning and it's the type of grand romantic use of color that i wish we had in blockbusters now where everything's so muted the fablements maybe gets a little bit of mileage out of that spielberg stuff and i think the connection that i would make there is that they're both memory movies what we're experiencing is rose's version her retelling of this love story yeah of course for rose there's always a picturesque (laughs) sunset in the background of every interaction she had with jack Mm -hmm. because that's just how she remembers jack which i think 
has this great offset and then her character is a bitch <laughs> the portrait of herself is like from a modern context we kind of root for her being so feisty and independent obviously but like she's just also a cad <laughs> what does kathy bates character call her she's a, she's a pistol cow yep. cal hockley her fiance oh my God. okay whenever he's on screen Billy. i have that wendy williams audio clip in my head where she says clap if you ever wanted to kill somebody <laughs> I love him so much in this. He's like 15% over the top, the way Paxton usually is in a James Cameron movie. Arch eyebrows. He has some of my favorite line deliveries in the entire film. The one that gets me the most is like way, 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 way at the end when he's got the kid in his arms. He's like, I have a child. That's my See, line. The one that I gets me that. is when he's like, <laughs> I put the diamond in the coat and I put the coat on her. <laughs> <laughs> they're still in the distance like he could feasibly chase after them but he's just like i give up i'm done <laughs> look you can't fight love like that so rose boards the ship with her fiance cal played by billy zane yeah those freaking eyebrows of his my god as the <laughs> tension of the film progresses manage to reach new levels of arch they start high and they just get higher <laughs> You can't even see them. Yeah, just like by the end, it's like all the way up into whatever that haircut is of his. Oh, I hate it. Kind of like a Joan Crawford look. <laughs> Rose boards the boat with her fiancé, Cal, and her horrible, horrible lizard person of Mother Ruth. Clap if you've ever wanted to kill somebody. Played by Frances <laughs> Fisher, the actress I mentioned earlier who was doing some very it's suspicious that, that and was. possibly rule-breaking Oscar. Oh uh, my god. <laughs> yes, that was. The one who posted the Instagram post. Yeah, I see you, girl. And whenever I see her on screen, I also have, <laughs> do you ever want to kill somebody? Audio running from my mind. And then... Jack wins the card game, hops on the ship with his friend Patrizio, and everybody is sailing off to America under the guiding hand of the guy who plays King Theoden in Lord of the Rings. Yes, uh, Bernard yep, Hill. The one and only. You've also got Thomas Andrews, who is like, he's like the ship's engineer, played by Victor Garber. Quietly one of my favorite performances of the movie. He's really good. I sort of think he's the heart of the film in a lot of ways. I think he has the single most heartbreaking line of the entire mm. film, which is, I'm sorry I didn't build you a stronger ship. And it's just like, ooh, ooh. There's a moment that's shared in both this and A Night to Remember, so I assume that it is historically factual, where the ship has basically started to go under. Everything's at a tilt. He's standing at a tilt in the main area with his arm rested against the basically the hearth. The moment when he stops the clock to mark the final time that the boat goes down. Ugh. Or the just terror in his eyes as he says to Rose, remember what I told you about the lifeboats? Mm-hmm. Ugh. There's one other name that I wanted to bring up, and that's Bruce Ismay, who, mm-hmm. that's a character in this film that's a real individual who worked for the White Star line. White Star is like the basically the company that was operating the Titanic. So you've kind of got the ship crew, which is led by the Bernard Hill character, his captain, the people that are like manning steam rooms, all those different people that work for the ship. And then you've got the White Star line. They're more like the service crew. They're the people that are like in the costumes. That schism is an important one because they have different values and beliefs. So some of the ship crew are people that are like, they know some of the flaws, but they don't really have the power and the authority to make the company behave in a different yeah. way. Because Andrews is like, there should have been more lifeboats, but there was concerns about the deck not being wide enough for people to walk through. 
And then that's how you get Ismay saying, we need to go full steam ahead, activate the last two boilers. It's a moment of pride. This is the crown jewel of the White Star Line's entire fleet of ships. It's the biggest boat, goes fast, and this is its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. So they really want this to be significant. They want to make good time. And particularly this path that they're going on is in the northern part of the Atlantic, which, as we all know, fatefully was full of icebergs. Just to get into the real history for a moment, there was a ship that was ahead of them that sent a note back via, this is not in the, it happened in real life, that was sending back messages to alert them about this. And the reason that it wasn't received because the radio transmissions on the Titanic were being overwhelmed with passengers, particularly the rich passengers, sending wires either to other people on the ship or wires to people back in England or wires to people in America. And so the radio is just completely fucking overworked. And so they had no means of knowing what they were full steam ahead right into. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that is a deleted scene. Mm, I wish that had made it, to be honest. It's such an interesting little part of the story. Yeah. One of the other basic details about that is that the other ship that had sent that message was like a three-man ship that did not have radio coverage 24 hours a day. So their radio operator sent the message, went to bed. And so this event actually led to a maritime law where like every ship, no matter how small, needed radio coverage all the way around the clock because of what happened to the Titanic. This entire event, as I already kind of alluded to, and one of the reasons I think the romance works so well is because of class conflict issues. Because that's really the story of the Titanic. They don't have enough lifeboats because they want the deck to be open for the rich passengers, and the rich passengers are the only people that get to get in the lifeboats. Everybody below decks, sorry. Lock them up. Tough. Close the gates, turn on the locks, shoot them if they try to get to the boats. And Victor Garber's absolute panic as he's like, why are you putting these boats in the water? I saw one go down with 12 people. They can fit 70 people. Mm-hmm. Like, what right. are you doing? Like, yeah. you're just leaving people to die. And they're putting women and children in them. And I think he specifically says it's tested with 70 grown men. Yeah. Even at capacity would hold fewer than 50% of the total passengers on this mm-hmm. boat. The way that this ends up going down, and we haven't really talked a lot of Jack and Rose because history stuff is cool, I guess. When they hit that iceberg, it basically punctures along the entire side of the boat. It's such a moment where that character basically looks at it and goes, we're fucked. He looks at the damage, and in an instant, he's like, we are going to sink. This boat is going to the bottom of the ocean. There's nothing we can do about it. And it's instantaneous, even though the process of them sinking in the real world took like three or four hours, and in the movie takes about two. Yeah. Going back to that moment when they hit the iceberg, switching back to Jack and Rose, I think it's funny that the first two people who drown are the people who are sent to go bust them for having sex in the car. What an image, by the way. That scene is so hot. I absolutely miss steamy hot sex in blockbuster movies it's such an evocative clever way to do sex that is steamy and hot Uh without having to show steamy and hot sex right like when his hand hits that window it's like oh yeah leo just came like a classic horror movie image but like (laughs) just completely (laughs) to be the most evocative sexy It's incredible. It's one of my favorite images of the whole movie. Jack is such a tender character, I think, because of his youth. He comes off younger than Rose, younger than Kate Winslet, less sure of himself in some ways. 
And I think a big part of their romance is the romance of consent, which I bring up specifically. So Cole, when you watch this, you said it was your first time crying in a movie since what? Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That movie script, heavily inspired by James Cameron's Titanic. Titanic. The same story. The way that that romance comes about, it's the artist and the subject. And having to build that chemistry, build that trust, build that relationship until the subject says, paint me like one of your French girls, which portrait of a lady on fire, ha ha ha, one of your French girls. <laughs> anyway, I just love the parallels that exist between the two movies. I think Siama's a genius yep. for using this as the springboard for her master. I thought about rewatching that tonight, but I was like, if I do that, <laughs> I'm just going to walk into the ocean and never be heard from again. Yeah. Peak Vivaldi. <sighs> I think there's a lot of really interesting things that Shyama talked about when she was like drawing those parallels in interviews and things. And she had some amazing takes on Titanic where she was like talking about her appeal for it initially was how there's kind of like a little bit of a queerness to the yes. imagery of the relationship yeah. between Jack and Rose where like Jack is so soft and tender and caring and it's like kind of like a different version of masculinity especially for the 90s yeah there's a bit of androgyny to him like he's got this like long haircut like long sweeping fringe and i kind of like had a little bit of that in the back of my mind when i was watching it this time and i agree with it in sort of a abstract sense but it more just sort of gives me romance in its broadest abstract sense that's not het it's not queer it's just kind of sweeping the scene to me that best demonstrates the idea of consent other than her asking to be drawn is the scene where she's over the railing looking like she's gonna jump because she feels so trapped by her circumstance the way that that scene goes he doesn't reach out and grab her what i mean is jack meets her up on the rail and is like i'm not gonna let you jump I'm not gonna let you kill yourself maybe the typical reaction that you would expect is that somebody would run up and grab him by the shoulders you know billy zane would be like manservant go grab her and chuck her back on the deck, right? But he doesn't do that. He goes up and he has a conversation with her, which ends with this idea that, like, if you jump, I jump. You go, I go. You're in the water, I'm in the water after you. And by doing that, he gains her permission to go out there, grab her hands, bring her back to safety. But that only gets to happen because he gets her consent first. And that is the basis of their connection. I think. Yeah. yeah, Jack gives her autonomy. Cal just treats her like an object. Even in the act of saving her life, he gives her autonomy. Mm -hmm. That actually segues into like a pair of scenes, I think, that are so crucial pre-syncing. The first is when Jack has to go. He gets dressed up, kind of meets Kathy Bates' character, who's like nouveau riche. Mm -hmm. And he has the whole dinner soiree. That's like a great Leonardo DiCaprio acting yeah. scene to me where he just like turns on the charm. And then right after that kind of like stodgy, boring, rich people celebration, we get to go to the party below decks where they're dancing to the jig and the bagpipes. You have all the different cultures of different people on the boat. Every culture is there. I just love the duality, this idea that like, yeah, there's like this swanky, beautiful party upstairs. It's fucking dull. And then downstairs where all the poor people are, we're having a goddamn blast. Mm -hmm. What did the musicians say? They don't listen to us at dinner anyway. Like... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely correct versus down here there's like this passion and fire to it i love the bit where they start spinning around each other that's like my favorite piece of winslet acting in this entire movie where she just like breaks into laughter as she's being spun around 
that hesitant oh. before she breaks into the laughter and she's like uh-huh. should yes. I, should i give into this and she just decide yeah no fuck it i am full freedom abandoned running through the steam decks you see her hair kind of like flowing in the gown Ugh. letting herself run wild and feeling all of her emotions and then as we've already alluded to many many times we get the nightmare version of all these images later too right when that steam deck is filling up with water when we're down in the lower decks where the party was being held and everything's fucking sideways and there's like electric shocks going off everywhere and you know people screaming people running for their lives just following the rats to circle again back to the point when we get that diagram of the ship he says all right we've been damaged here we're going down you understand in your head already about the lifeboats we see how many people there are and you're about halfway through the movie when the guy on the top deck in the crow's nest is like iceberg straight ahead so for that entire second half james cameron has you on the torture rack the dread that starts to seep into the bottom of my stomach it's like insanely palpable how bad this movie makes me feel and that feeling only works if they take the time to show those downstairs party scenes yeah if it doesn't draw this emotional connection to like here is where the life is here is where the people that know how to celebrate life are and these are the people that are going to have it taken from them meanwhile the people that don't know how to do that the people that are constantly just suffocating people they're the ones that get to live there's that moment when they're all lining up to get out the lifeboats and Rose's mom is like, well, the lifeboats be segregated according to class and you just want to choke her. They're all like lining up calmly. They know they're going to live. Yeah. They have no qualms, no worries, and they don't have to fight for it. Mm-hmm. And you see every other person on that ship fight yep. for their life. You know, they're probably not even that mindful of the idea that the lifeboats are going to run out. They don't know. Oh, yeah, we got 15 in ours, 15 in that one. I mean, what's the problem? Only Rose, who comes back to Victor Carver with that, doesn't the ship have a lot more people than the capacity of these lifeboats? Mm -hmm. But all those other people, they get the same tour and they miss that. Which I think becomes a harsh reality for everyone, rich and poor, by the end whether they're on the lifeboats or not, because there's not enough lifeboats for all the rich people either, one. And then two, once they're out there on the lifeboats and the boat goes down, how long do you think they sat there listening to fucking people screaming and drowning? Hours. Yeah, there's the scene with Kathy Bates where she's like, those are our men out there. Like, those are people right. out there. I don't understand any of you. Like, we have space. We drop these boats in the water with space. That always haunts me. There was the opportunity for more lives to be saved and they blatantly just did not take it this movie really is just a reminder that death is the great equalizer no matter how much money you have i think that you and i have been talking a lot about that with james cameron like it's just an inescapable reality of his work whether you're talking about titanic avatar terminator aliens all of it the relationship with mortality and not just like grimness because i think that we could name some other directors like you and i both really love no way we love vortex and that's a movie about life and death but i think cameron does this great magic trick coldness and inevitability gives life its purpose Mm -hmm. it's what gives it the sweep and the sunset and the romance and it's that contrast that makes each side of it feel so real so evocative you have to understand what's sinking in the waves the scene that really encapsulates this for me, but really, I guess it's two scenes, but they kind of tie together, is when the musicians all start playing Nearer My God to the, and then you see everyone running around on the boat. You see 
the old couple in the bed together. And that's when I start crying. And then you see the mom putting her kids to bed with the fairy tale. And then that's when I start crying harder. And then the music kicks up and then it's just death, 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 destruction, chaos, the dome imploding, people screaming and rushing and panicking. But this is what I wanted to dig in because you and I talked about this. Like none of these scenes made me cry. Like they make me feel something very different than sadness. Uh The stuff that makes me cry in this movie is like when Gloria Stewart's like, he exists now only in my memory. Like, Mm. that shit rips my heart out. I can't stand it. But this part of it, it's like, for me, it's primal fear. It's rats climbing over each other. It's probably the peak of Hollywood set pieces, particularly this movie has copious cgi in it for 97 but like if i can say like the pre-digital pre-cg era and have that clock even though it like half of this movie is the greatest disaster movie set piece of all time it's like a maximalist thrill ride like it's Uh, almost a thriller like you feel that clock ticking and you feel the end coming you feel at the edge of your seat mm -hmm. for the entirety of those last like 90 minutes and it just doesn't stop it doesn't let up you don't get to breathe at any Mm -hmm. point particularly when rose goes down to save jack dutch angles hallways half full of water she's got to get like the axe and like cut him out they have to break back through the top and then obviously like the two of them are also like on the top deck they're basically on the boat until it goes 100 in the water climbing up to the bow climbing on top of the bow climbing under the bottom of yeah. it you know in terms of like talking about this like it's a great set piece i think the easiest way that we can explain that is that avatar the way of water also ends like this <laughs> like the biggest blockbuster of last year's like huge action movie also ends the same way that this ends yeah. the difference is well i don't even know if it's really a difference because i think it's there too is the scenes that Cole's talking about. It's like it's the greatest disaster movie of all time, but unlike every other disaster movie, it accentuates its own thrilling greatness with real humanity, real emotion. It's not just like the end of a Michael Bay movie where Chicago gets fucking leveled into CGI dust, and it doesn't really feel like anything. When I'm watching all the people splashing around in that dark, cold water, it gets under my skin. And then when you see that lifeboat coming through and there's no more splashing in the water. Uh, oh my God. Like, the mother and the infant frozen. The lighting of the lifeboat where it's got that lonely little searchlight. And you see all the stars in the sky and it's so quiet. Yeah. It's so dark, completely solemn, sobering. It's insane to me that this movie is like at the Force Awakens, Avatar... <laughs> Avengers Infinity War kind of level because I mean like Avengers Infinity War would love you to think that it's a movie about death but like come on (laughs) (laughs) I've literally already cited Vortex the fact that I'm talking about like fucking really depressing Gaspar (laughs) movies in the same breath as like the third or fourth highest grossing film in the history of the box office I mean this is a devastatingly bleak movie at times it's amazing that it made this much money like how the fuck were teenage girls in 1997 like yeah i want to go see this five times (laughs) for teenage girls at least if i put myself in the shoes of a teenage girl which means i think of myself as a teenage boy thirsting after boys i think we all wanted a jack you know we wanted a jack that would constantly like reaffirm our lust for life and lead us around to the next adventure being like come on rose come on rose yes 
Yes, yeah. lead me there. Take me there. That element of it, I fully get why teenage girls wanted to see this a thousand oh, times. Yeah. It does have that despair and that tragedy and that reaffirmation of how death is the great equalizer. But at the same time, it captures like such a broad spectrum of human emotion. Like uh-huh. it takes you through the whole freaking emotional journey of life. It captures the highs and the lows. And I think that's why it has broad appeal because it fully just is about life itself and celebrating (laughs) what is joyful about it and the struggles of it and the demise of it. Dan Felgelman could never. (laughs) I think for such a technologically driven, technologically advanced film and filmmaker and James Cameron, it's really meaningful to take this story that's kind of about the folly of man and arrogance, like this idea of this is the biggest boat in the world. It's this great thing. And here's where we fucked up. Here's where we could have done better. And just exploring stuff like that. I think that that's something that really has an underrated but really important synergy with like how James Cameron makes movies. It's something that like comes up in Spielberg stuff a lot, like Jurassic Park or whatever. It's like the importance of looking at these moments in human history, fact or fiction, and exploring how we think that we have this dominance technologically over everything. We've solved it all. We've figured it all out. But this is the great equalizer. Shit breaks. Mm -hmm. People die. And there's nothing you can really do about it, you know, no matter, even if you spare it to no expense. Exactly. I... (laughs) So I watched um, War of the Worlds, the Spielberg War of the Worlds recently, which I think actually like it's like as close as Spielberg gets to doing this because it's like his 9-11 movie. It's like the disaster 9-11 versus Titanic. It's like Spielberg's Godzilla in a way. There's even a scene where like a ferry gets sunk and people are like in the water. It's very Titanic-y. I got to like thinking as I was watching this, I was like, I would love to watch A, James Cameron's War of the Worlds and B, Steven Spielberg's Titanic. They'd be entirely different movies than they currently are, but I would love to watch both of them just to, just to see. Whatever alternate universe is out there that has it, uh, please let us know. I believe Tom Cruise was at one point on the short list of actors who would play Jack. Yes, in this but film. his asking price was too high. Imagine bizarre that. movie, bizarre. I can't imagine what that movie would no, be like. That would have been so weird. It's like pre Eyes Wide Shut, pre magnolia cruise so it's like he would have still been married to kid it would have been better if he was like top gun age if it was like late 80s cruise imagine if cruise and kidman were the leads of this is it like eyes wide shut (laughs) (laughs) that's what they do downstairs kidman is rose (laughs) cruise plays billy zane's character and there's like a third guy okay that makes sense actually tom cruise is billy zane (laughs) Okay. That I see. I see that. I can see it. I, see Jack. I don't think that he would have done that in 1997 like, <laughs> <laughs> under any circumstances. James Cameron and Tom Cruise should work together, though. I have a friend who is fond of saying that if the two of them ever met, they would either become enemies or they would become drift compatible. I think whatever film they make would destroy the world. Might be the thing that finally actually gets Tom Cruise to kill himself in a stunt. <laughs> It makes $3 billion opening weekend, and it almost certainly would have a breath-holding scene, because the breath-holding record went from Titanic to Mission Impossible 5, back to James Cameron with Way of Water. Yep. 
I've got to say, I'm still confused about how Kate Winslet was convinced to work with James Cameron again. I was reading an interview and she said that a lot of it is because he's really mellowed out since they're making a Titanic. But I'm sure yeah. she also got paid a really nice yeah. paycheck <laughs> to come she back. She got a truck full of yep. money. Uh, uh, I love listening to stories of like James Cameron directing this movie or like T2. There's like a very famous crew t-shirt for T2 that's full of like the entire back of it is just James Cameron isms like shit that he would say on set. He's like a really tough love guy where he's just like works hard, wants to get shit done, wants to do really difficult things and mans a lot of his people. But everybody that's ever talked about him like would run through the wall for the guy. They just develop such a passion for what they're all doing together. Mm -hmm. And I think once you see the movies, it's like, well, yeah, nobody else could make this. No one could make Titanic. As much as I would love to see like how Spielberg would approach the material, he could never make the movie the way that the movie is, especially in 1997. I think like 2000 Spielberg could have reached into his back pocket and done some mm-hmm. stuff, but like the 90s version of him would have been too sentimental for this. Although I'm going to sit here and tell you right now, James Cameron is just as sentimental as Steven Spielberg, if not more. I am. I would say more, honestly. Once you get into the 2000s and you're like watching AI in Munich, it's kind of undeniable that he is more sentimental than Steven Spielberg. Or at least just more openly emotional. I think like with Spielberg, it's a lot of like nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of, you know, like Americana nostalgia. And then it's like unpacking the different layers mm-hmm. of that versus like James Cameron is Terminator. He's like, the world is a fucking dumpster. Everything is on fire. It's the apocalypse, but love is going to save us all. I think there's more of a universality to that James Cameron approach as well, where it's timeless, where Spielberg is a bit more, I wouldn't call him timeless. Some of his work is. Some of his work is, but I feel like he's rooted in nostalgia. Yeah. In a way that James Cameron does not do, and it makes his work just that little bit more able to exist in every era. And every culture, as we've talked about a lot with Avatar. Not really that much of a distinction in his emotional approach from Titanic to Avatar to Avatar 2. And as we can see, the the three of the biggest movies of all time, and they're all a decade apart. He knows how to speak to the world. It's that universal language of cinema. It's the image, which is like why some Spielberg, I think, becomes universal. Because the image is a universal language. Everyone can see it and understand what it means. What's interesting about Cameron, I think, is like he's a total Hollywood guy at this point, like USA filmmaker, but he's also Canadian. I've always kind of wondered how much that, like, Steven Spielberg is an American, capital and capital American. And every movie he's ever made is American. The other thing I really think about a lot with Cameron, especially in the regards to the way he explores class issues, is that the guy used to be a truck driver, worked as a truck driver saw Star Wars in theaters in 1977 and knew that's what he wanted to do. And then got his start as like a set decorator mm-hmm. for John Carpenter, worked under Roger Corman, humble genre yeah. workman-like. I love the anecdotes about him working on Aliens mm-hmm. where he's like, yeah, you know, the British, they have these union rules. And I was just like, nah, fuck it. Let's do <laughs> stuff. Let's just get in there, roll our hands yeah. up. Sure. This might sound incredibly, you know, boomerific, but you know, someone who used to be a truck driver probably knows how to speak to the entire planet better than anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about James Cameron's statements is that 
in other people's mouths against other people's careers and what they've put out, it would sound arrogant or egotistical, Mm -hmm. but he just has the success and the filmography that just back up every single thing that he's ever said. Like some studio execs like, Hey, you got to do this and do this and avatar. And he's like, look, you see this lot, you know why we have this because of Titanic, bitch. He is the person that Elon Musk rat wakes up every day and wishes he could be. <laughs> There's an arrogance and a cockiness that's just entirely endearing and earned. He also like rewrote the Terminator script while writing the Alien script while writing. I forget there were three that he was doing at once, and he wrote them over a period of like two or three months because he's like, yeah, I just sat down at my word processor. Mm-hmm. And I wrote 50 pages a day. (laughs) He's just a machine. He seems to love the work. He loves technology. Like no one in the industry, in my opinion, comes close as like a gearhead, Peter Jackson, Ang Lee, Robert Zemeckis type of guy. Like nobody does it better than him. Like Titanic's back out in theaters because of 3D and high frame rate. That's why it's back in theaters. It's because this dude's a freak. Unlike all those other names that you just mentioned, like Lee, Zemeckis... Cameron knows when the moment is right. To sell a technology-advancing forwarding movie, you've got to wait for the moment that the technology intersects with the correct release. Mm -hmm. He knows to sit on a movie and develop a movie for a decade and wait for it to be right, where all of those other guys are like, We'll release the movie and someone else will figure out the technology after we've released it because we've broken the ground. (laughs) I think that's the lesson you learn from the abyss. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who had a rough draft of the first Avatar movie ready in 1997 and sat on it for years until I think it was actually the two towers and he saw Gollum and was like, okay, Mm. now we can do it. Now I can start and it'll take seven years to do it. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Those are the only other movies. Maybe The Force Awakens, just like that Christmas, that December was a little bit like this. But Lord of the Rings, only other movies besides Titanic. I can remember so much buzz and fanfare and like electricity in the cinema where like people painted the characters on the glass as you were coming into the, you know, atrium of the theater. The the restraint to wait for 97 to 2009 to drop another movie is fucking crazy he must have had people at his door every day like what are you gonna make a movie man hey james it's 20th century fox on the phone they want to know if you want to take the call and then of course he like comes back and breaks his own box office records twice it's been really cool having james cameron movies back in the theaters between avatar titanic and it's way of water blessing I'm so jealous that you guys have a Titanic re-release and I don't. Oh, it's not over there? Oh, no. Damn. <laughs> no I had to watch it on my Blu-ray last night. Oof. Great Blu-ray. The 4K transfers, fucking incredible. It's the best James Cameron 4K so far. I'm really looking forward them, to them dropping that on home media because I'm really yeah. purchasing it immediately. Yeah, this remaster is gorgeous. Please, God, we need a 4K of The Abyss, please. It's coming. He said he was working on it. It's just been a little busy with the, well, everything related on Pandora. <laughs> Any further notes on Titanic? Anything that we missed? Um, I have two. 
I fully had Mandela effect for ages. So there's a common Mandela effect that people think that Rose says, paint me like one of your French girls when she says, draw me like mm. one of your French girls. But the one that I have is that I fully have believed in my head for my entire life that Fabrizio says, mamma mia, <laughs> when the smokestack falls on him. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) The smokestack is like the spookiest sound effect of all time. It's so loud. Oh my god, the sound when the boat splits in half. The other thing is maybe my favorite genre of cinema is epic romance. That's the thing that I really love and wish that we had more of. And I feel like it's died out in the last few decades. And I was just wondering, can you guys think of any movies from the last 20 years that kind of meet that same kind of like romance at the center? It's grand. I can think of one. It's a giant blockbuster. It's like, they don't spend money on that type of movie anymore and make it that kind of like epic feeling thing. I can think of one. The similarities are like Billy Zane and his manservant and the tragedy at the end of it. It's a movie that, Cole and I have covered on this show before. It's Moulin Rouge, right? That's the other one. That's the only other one (laughs) that I can think of that's got like the scale and the imagery and the tragedy and like the spectrum of human emotion, just like all the note, 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 notes that you would have for Titanic. It's obviously not the same level of success, but it was a big box office success, had a single that was number one, all that different type of stuff. So I think there's a lot of parallels you can draw between those two. Yeah. Um, The Matrix movies. With Neo and Trinity, I love Matrix Resurrections. That's why Matrix Resurrections gets a full five stars from me because it gives me that kind of epic romance feel that I feel like I've been lacking from so much blockbuster cinema in the last few decades. So, so if I go through my 2010s, like a lot of what I enjoy, a lot of what's at my top end are love stories, but it's like Before Midnight, Phantom Thread, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, If Beale Street Could Talk, Cold War. They're like these kind of international or art house movies that are like small. We love them. They're great, but they're not studio fucking blockbusters ever. And I always come back to the word sweeping. I want mm-hmm. to be emotionally sweeped off my feet when I watch a movie that costs more than $100 million. And that's something I don't feel anymore. And that's something that Titanic reminds me of that leaves me disappointed <laughs> just the rest of <laughs> blockbuster cinema. Avatar The Way of Water is maybe one of the few times that I've actually felt that way in recent memory. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like that's still building to the biggest romances of the I sequels think it between will, the kids. I feel the seeds of it getting grandly emotionally sweeping in a way that I don't think it's yet to reach, but I think it will hit it. But I just want to touch on that note of, I think it is our last great grand epic romance. I think it It is is kind of like the Casablanca of our lifetimes. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's brief encounter as Lawrence of Arabia at the same time. It's like that David Lean tragic romance meets the David Lean epic blockbuster close to four hour type of you know big 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 epic i think the pirates yeah. of the caribbean movies mm. attempt it but do not they succeed try. <laughs> they try, they try. <laughs> i've got one i've got one I've got okay one. what have you got it lands in between moulin rouge and titanic on the release schedule and the hint is getting a theatrical re-release here in America. Ah. And we're going to be talking about it on our next episode. Ang Lee 
Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's telling that that's also one of my favorite movies and that you've invited me to talk about that one as well. <laughs> yeah, we won't get ahead of ourselves. To me, that one is yeah, like two romances together. Ooh, Michelle Yeoh. I rewatched it last night after Titanic. And it is hey. it actually makes a really great double feature with Titanic. I can't wait to see it when it opens up next weekend. So yeah, I would say that it's for me, I would say Titanic, Crouching Tiger, Moulin Rouge, which takes you into the early two thousands and then stops. Yeah, and then there's nothing yeah, else nothing. after that. And I think that's because our blockbusters have gotten afraid of the sweeping emotions and the human connection. Afraid of sincerity. Yep. They're immersed in iron. I think there's starting to be a little bit of a course correction with Avatar and Top Gun basically stomping on every single superhero movie that came out last year. Now, whether that course of correction holds up, who knows? We'll have to see. But it does give me a little bit of hope. Emotional sincerity sells. That yeah. gives me hope that the two emotionally sincere blockbusters of the last couple of years sell. Are the biggest success stories. Yeah. When I look at these lists, and just more broadly, what I see is like, a lot of that kind of went to Pixar. Like Up has a very sincere romance at the center of it. And it's a children's yeah. movie. Like that's kind of where that stuff landed. While, you know... As you know, I mentioned Spielberg's 2000 stuff, it's like everything kind of moved into this like grimmer, darker, and then kind of ironic post-Wolf of Wall Street. I love Wall Street with all of my heart. But that kind of is like the tone now. It's big, it's exciting, it's a lot, but it's not love, it's not romance, it's uh-huh. not sincere, it's ironic. A lot of frenetic energy and not a lot of ability to just be able to sit with a moment and an emotion. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's something we're missing. A lot of what we have now is a reaction to Michael Bay filling the James Cameron void in terms of blockbusters throughout the 2000s, which sounds Mm -hmm. psychotic, I realize, but... I think you're right. No, it's He was out there making those Transformers movies that were making a billion dollars that, you know, had the technology, had the explosions, had the excitement, and had the maturity of an eight-year-old. I mean, even more than that, the Pearl Harbor, Arbor movie. Oh, God. Which is <laughs> an enormous freaking ripoff of Titanic in every sense of the word. So I, th- I think you kind of have Spielberg stepping into like a darker, more adult, more mature palette where like his good movies are the tight dramas like Fableman's, like The Post, and his bad movies are like the blockbusters like Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Got like all these different like auteurs who are just like going headlong into the There Will Be Blood period pieces. And James Cameron kind of disappears, started doing his Avatar thing. Yeah. I mean, West Side Story does feel kind of like an attempt to return to this. Yeah, agree. Yeah, it does. The central romance is like... That's eh. the thing, you know? Like, it's West Side Story, so the central romance is the least interesting part of it, which... Right, always has been. Not the case with Titanic. Right, agreed. Right attempt, wrong project to make that attempt <laughs> Hopefully, whatever he does next, I would love to see a return to the sweeping romance of it all. But yeah, that's Titanic. And that's James Cameron. And I'm really happy that we got to talk about that. Feels like the culmination of a couple conversations Cole and I have already had about the Avatar movies. Just bringing all these themes back home. This is both of your favorite James Cameron movie, right? Yeah. (laughs) By a very wide margin. It's two for me by a narrow margin because my love for T2 runs deeper than anything on this earth as far as i know (laughs) 
one I don't know. One day we'll have to cover the Terminator movies or something. Just like really Listen, round it all out. We're gonna do the whole <laughs> gamut at some point. We'll do Terminator. I'll yell at you about aliens and your yeah. take on that. <laughs> I love Michael Bean and I cherish Michael Bean, and that's you know that's what matters. <laughs> uh, this has been a great, lot of fun. Cole, do you have any final thoughts? Watching it today and realizing that I was like actively like shedding tears in a way that I never do when watching movies. You know, when I'm watching movies, I get sad, I get emotional. Yeah. I never actively cry. And this is one of the very few movies that can actually do that to me. It's a testament to his skills as a filmmaker and as a storyteller to get the emotion out of something so heavy and serious and real and tragic. Because for all of the action and the romance and the jokes that pop in propeller guy right the underlying thing here is still that over a thousand people died when they didn't need to and it really makes you feel the loss to me the thing that i think about a lot is this term that you probably hear and think like business boardroom but that james cameron embodies creatively as well as just you know financially and that's the idea of four quadrant entertainment it's this movie's like the historical epic it's the romantic epic it's the disaster movie it's the technological pinnacle it's balancing all the same types of stuff that like it's not the same things as jurassic park but if you've ever listened to me talk about jurassic park like it's just that it spins 12 plates like it's nothing and it's just Mm -hmm. nailing every single thing that it's trying to do while trying to do everything most of my favorite movies of all time particularly when it comes to the blockbuster are going to be things like Fury Road, where they say, look, everything is focused on this. We have a very simple, basic idea, and we're going to execute it to the absolute highest level. What Titanic does is it ignores that first part, says, we're going to do 30 things, and we're going to do them at the highest level possible. And I mean, like that takes, I mean, it takes James Cameron. (laughs) That's the conclusion that I draw. I do kind of now want to see George Miller do a grand sweeping epic romance. <laughs> Although That's kind of what three thousand years of kind longing of is. is what three thousand years of longing is. So I, bet. I, I guess guess we got it, and now we can get uh, the Mad Max prequel. Yeah. I don't I don't know about all that, but well that's for another day. <laughs> for now, we are thankful for James Cameron and Titanic, and we you know, we're looking forward to seeing what the Avatar sequels have in store for us. And I, I hope that before all is said and done, we get another James Cameron movie. But even if we don't, like this one just, as James laid out very, very well, it's a treasure to revisit because it wins you over, puts you right back into that story every single time. And then it goes into that song and it shatters my heart yeah. all over again. One thing that I'll say, I feel like we always kind of drop composers because we're always talking about like characters and themes and production. Even when we get technical, uh, it's easy to forget the late, great James Horner and mm. how much he contributes to all of Cameron's films, especially this one. One of his best scores. Easily, I would say. Uh-huh. I, I think it might be his best score. I would say so. Notably, he wrote My Heart Will Go On, the Celine Dion song. That's, yeah. that's his song. She did it in one take because she wasn't convinced <laughs> about it. Even Cameron didn't want a song at the end. He just wanted silence until Horner was like, no, I have this song. You need to listen to it. And it worked. He was right. I, you know, I love Cameron's instinct there, but the song is iconic and it's a huge part of it. Perfect way to end it. It's the key to it all. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I really wish that I had gotten to see Magic Mike after this because, like, I'm serious. I left that theater. It was like late. It was Thursday. I had to work the next day. I was just like, oh, I feel terrible. <laughs> and I, like I say, that it's not just like pure misery. It really is. It's that full human emotional spectrum, kind of mm-hmm. empties you out, fills you back up. Lawless. I've greatly enjoyed getting to talk about it with both of you. So thank you very much. And we look forward to talking to you both again about Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. We can maybe unpack that and figure out how it stacks up as an epic romance. Epic period romances are coming back, so hopefully we can keep this trend going. And who knows, uh, Dr. Zhivago re-release anybody? Let's go. Let's do it. David Lee. Thank you guys both again, and thank you everybody for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Bye.